This week on A Lively Experiment, a political bombshell as a once-in-a-generation congressional seat opens up unexpectedly. And a big week for Governor McKee, who delivers his State of the State address and unveils his budget proposal for next year. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr., for over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us for the analysis, former Providence Mayor Angel Tavares, political contributor Scott McKay, and former state representative Nick Gorham. And welcome to Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. What a week it has been. It's hard to knock a state of the state speech and budget reveal from the headlines, but that's exactly what Congressman Jim Langevin did by dropping a bombshell on Tuesday. Langevin said that after 11 terms, he will be leaving his second congressional district seat a year from now. And that has a lot of people considering jumping into what is now a wide open race. Now, Angel, we booked you before this show. <laughs> Coincidentally, you're the guy who ran along with a couple of people against the congressman 22 years ago. I remember that primary. Let's, we'll get into the history and, and all of that. Were you surprised? Um, no, I wasn't surprised in one way, and that's because of some of the changes that I had seen in his staff and people who are uh, super loyal to the congressman and uh, made some changes. So uh, that didn't surprise me in that sense, right? When you start seeing some of the more senior people leave, um, that didn't surprise me. But you know, look, the Congressman Langevin has a great record here in Rhode Island, and I, you know, we were talking before going on here how much respect I have for him because back then in 2000, he was the best known, best funded um, front runner. And he would debate anywhere, basically any place publicly when he had no incentive to do that, right? Uh, especially with you have lesser known opponents running against you. And a lot of people talk the talk. He uh, walks the walk in that sense. And, and so uh, God bless him and thank you for his service. He's been an outstanding congressman and whatever he does next, I think he'll be successful. Uh, not easy to be in Congress these days. <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, a lot of people, it's, I find it amusing because a lot of people are kind of circling around and discussing. It's not an easy atmosphere. It was totally different than when he arrived 22 years ago, 21 years ago. Yeah, not a great inducement for people to run. I will say uh, as well, uh, Congressman Langevin, true gentleman, wonderful human being, um, always very cordial whenever, you know, you'd bump into him. He'd almost always remember your name. And um, so um, I didn't always agree with all of his politics, but that that's secondary, you know, to the kind of person he he is. Uh, he's a great person. And uh, I hear there's a rumor that he's going to be the president of uh, Rhode Island College. So we'll see. Well, that's that's a rumor at this point. We'll yeah, we love there. rumors. A couple of things you need to get. Yeah, we talk a lot about rumors here. <laughs> Scotty, were you surprised? Minorly, just minorly, because he probably would have been a, a real favorite for re-election. I think the one thing about Jim Langevin, and I know that not everybody agrees with his politics, but whether you do or not, here's a guy who really had probably the toughest thing that could ever happen to any of us as a teenager. And you just have to admire a man who has made his life a service to the state. He was able to overcome a horrible thing. Takes him two or three hours to get dressed. I think in the morning, all of the travel, all of this stuff, I think he decided that he didn't want to be Ted Kennedy or someone like that who goes toes up in Congress. And he wants to have a decent retirement and 
presidency of Rick. It'd be good in a way for Rick because they certainly need someone who's high profile, who can raise some money, and who will have some juice with the legislature. Um, one of the problems with Rick, it's a great place, and it probably is the best bang for the buck in Rhode Island uh, higher education, but there is a problem there since uh, Governor Raimondo's deal with the Community College of Rhode Island, and I have no problem with that, giving free tuition there. It's led people not to go to Rick, and Rick has experienced a real kind of downfall in the number of people applying, and I believe they're down about 10% in students, and that's just not good. You know, it's not, this story sounds, it's a nice storyline, you know, graduate comes home. I'm not sure, and look, we, we don't know, we haven't, I haven't talked to the congressman about this, whether that's something he wants to jump into. That's a very demanding job now, just for the reasons that you said. It is. The one thing I wanted to do is, uh, Scott, if you can throw up, uh, Scott Saracen, our director, throw up a picture. Um, Mike Delaney from the Journal was going through the old archives this year and came up with a picture. I did a lot of uh, television in Washington. I was there for Jack Reed's inauguration. I was there the day Jim Langevin was sworn in. And the Journal got this great picture of me interviewing in there. And what I remember most from that day was they had had to make accommodations because he's a quadriplegic, obviously. And I remember that was the day he got kind of overshadowed a little bit because this senator from New York named Hillary Clinton was being sworn in. That was her first name. And I'll never forget Strom Thurmond giving her a little kiss as she walks on to the uh, to the Senate floor. But it was a wild day. And and Jim Langerman, just as he does here, was whipping around in that wheelchair. If you've ever seen him, he and he went right into the there was no room for us in the elevator. He said, I'll see you on the second floor. But um, I thought about what you said, Scotty, about just every day what it takes. We roll out of bed and we're here relatively quickly what it takes for him to be able to do his job. It's hard, but he never complained about it. He never was someone who, you know, used the card. Uh, one person around him when he first ran this said, you know, we're going to show Chrome all over the state. And I remember Marianne Sorrentino saying something nasty about him on the air, and it just totally backfired. And the one thing that he did was, everybody who challenged him, he had this impregnable base in work. Mm. which is the most important part of that district. And Angel uh, learned that very, very <laughs> viscerally when he ran against Langevin. And, and those folks in Warwick have been loyal to him when he ran for state rep, when he ran for secretary of state, and Congress. The thing is, I always look at that district as Cranwick, the Cranston-Warwick access, access rather. If you can handle, get those two, two cities... You really have a great base in that district, and I think you'd probably agree. No, I, I do, and I just want to say one thing, though, about the congressman, and we've certainly talked about the challenges he's overcome, but let's also not overlook the fact that he is a cybersecurity um, guru, really, uh, and it was recognized, I think the Washington Post talked That's about it. That's his niche. Uh, absolutely, that uh, Congress was lose, losing a cybersecurity stalwart um, in Congressman Langevin, and so I want to just focus as well on the accomplishments, because I know that he's always um, focused on policy and moving forward and uh, recognizing that he's also a symbol of hope to so many people around the world but uh, but want to focus on some of the things that he's done and the legacy he leaves behind in cybersecurity we're learning more and more as we look at the what happened at Ripta the other day and other places in our elections how important cybersecurity is and he's been on this for many many years so on the record Angel Tavares is not a candidate oh absolutely not well, <laughs> not, well not serve if drafted um, <laughs> Nick I wonder too that district has changed a little bit 
over the years, and I wonder if there's room for a Republican now. I mean, some people are saying Alan Fung, you know Bob Lancey is in already, but he's kind of a second-tier candidate. What is the path for victory if, if a Republican wants to get into this race? Well, it's been 32 years since a Republican was in uh, that seat. Claudine Schneider. Wow. 1990. Um, so and she had served for 10 years? Uh, yes, 1980 to 1990. So if there's anyone under 32 out there, um, maybe you should consider running for that <laughs> seat since <clears throat> it's been nothing but uh, one party since since 1990, believe it or not. So the path for a Republican is, um, <clears throat> I think this may be the best year to run in a long time. Uh, as a Republican for that, that seat, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of dissent uh, in the Democrat Party. Um, it's an open seat. Uh, many of the uh, prime candidates are <clears throat> in the governor's race, the Democrat primary. So, uh, you know, and, and Speaker Shikarchi has pulled out. So my advice is if you want a chance, to, if you want to run in a year in an environment where you've got maybe the best chance you're ever going to have, this might be the year. I think... As a Republican. Yes, as a Republican, one thing <clears throat> I would bring up, it's a non-presidential year. Right, that which helps. Is off year, it's always better for a Republican. I think if you could find a moderate, uh, you could. The problem is any Democratic candidate will nationalize this race very quickly, in the same way that Sheldon Whitehouse in 2006 beat Link Chafee, who... He had a 65% approval rating. He did. And some people said... And remember, the Senate was in the balance back then. It was. And within a couple of votes, they said, I can't vote for Chafee. <clears throat> I like Link, but I don't want the Senate to go Republican. Precisely. And that's the whole thing. I mean, people in New England look at somebody like a McCarthy or these crazies. The other night in Alabama, they had a congressional debate with Mo Brooks and some folks. And the whole thing was about them saying they want Donald Trump to be the next speaker. I mean, there's some crazies now in the Republican Party in the Trump cult. And I think if you found a real moderate who could get through a primary, uh, you could probably have a good challenge for that seat. I think, as Nick says, this is a pretty good environment for a Republican. What's the path for a Democrat? Well, I think um, the, the I'd rather be a Democrat than a Republican, and I am a Democrat, right? So, uh, but, <laughs> no offense. But, but it's going to be, I think, a competitive uh, Democratic primary, and I think it's going to be a competitive general election, unlike some of the elections we've had in the past. So uh, for a Democrat, I think uh, Scott talked about it a little bit earlier. Cranston and Warwick really is, the, uh, is a big part of that district. Um, you have Johnston, um, some of Providence as well, um, and you've got a lot of uh, other uh, towns uh, that are part of it as well. But I mean, anyone who can do well in Warwick and um, and in Cranston are going to be is going to be interesting. I'd say take a look and keep an eye out for Ed Pacheco because I think he's going to be really uh, he may be interesting. Remember, they moved Borough though. Mm. They moved Boroughville in 2012. They moved it from the first to the second, which is where Ed's from. Mm. So uh, it's going to be interesting. He lives in Warwick now, so it'll be interesting. Do you sense that that district is more conservative now? Oh, it definitely than is. it was. I even mean, the, 10, da 15 the data years ago. the data shows it. Uh, the data shows it, and part of the reason they moved Boroughville in 2012 was to help Congressman Cicilline, um, and the data shows that Congressional District 1 is actually more Democratic in terms of the vote uh, than Congressional District 2. That's pretty much always been that way. Burville's bounced back and forth. <laughs> Republican, they depends it's, who does the reapportionment, and, uh, you know, so it's bounced back and forth. I do think that the Republicans, though, uh, could have a moderate, I mean, somebody like Senator De La Cruz, if she wasn't so... <laughs> Right wing, I think, 
uh, would be a decent candidate. I just don't see that person out there. I mean, a Dennis Algier or someone of that mode who wanted the job, someone more like Claudine Schneider than Patricia Morgan on the Republican side, I think would be a viable candidate. What about what about Alan Funk? Um, well, he'd always be a, a viable candidate for, for any office. He's got great name recognition, which is, you know, there's a half a million dollars out of the way right there. <laughs> um, yep. But I'd like to say Jessica De La Cruz, I agree, she would be a great candidate. Well, you didn't say she would be a great candidate, but I, I want to say that she would be. Um, she's, uh, she's young, she's got a lot of uh, great qualities, and uh, she's a senator, she's done a good job when she speaks, she's very clear and crisp, so um, we'll see. I, you know, uh, I agree it's got to be someone who's more of a moderate. But this is a great year, and I, I think it's unfair not to mention Bob Lancia, who's already said he's going to run, sure. and did a yeoman's effort last time. Uh, I think he, did he break 40%? Yes, he did. I think he did. So that's sort of the benchmark. And you for, wonder whether Dylan Connolly, Connolly who, had, who had taken on Langevin in the primary, whether he'd get any traction. I don't know. Yeah. Got a lot of donor lists. Okay, uh, we'll be keeping track of that. Uh, what got bumped off the headlines was it's unbelievable. We had a state-of-the-state state speech and a budget presentation all in the same week in the third week of January. So I don't know what's happening to the world. As you remember, the last couple of years, it's been put off. Uh, Governor McKee had about a 40-minute address on Tuesday night. We have some of those highlights for you. Here's some of what he had to say. It's because of you, Rhode Island, that I can stand here tonight before you with confidence and say that the state of Rhode Island is resilient and full of opportunity. Tomorrow we'll be announcing over 100 projects valued at $2.1 billion that we're able to speed up because of these federal infrastructure funds, because of our congressional leadership. This initiative, initiative will create safer roads, bridges, and bike paths, and will put many more tradesmen and women to work. We must address the availability and quality of our housing. We're going to work with the General Assembly to make sure our schools get the funding they need. My budget will call for key small business support, supports for more funding for small business grants, especially for the severely impacted industries like tourism and hospitality. My proposed budget will include millions in funding for climate change-related investments without impacting general revenues. So the governor followed this up on Thursday night with a $12.8 billion. It's hard to keep track, but with the federal money in it, you know, it seemed like it was $9 billion just a little while ago. Nick, any initial thoughts? There's, a, there's an emphasis on, um, obviously, on affordable housing is going to be a big issue. And there's, it, there's various tranches of money. You've got the, you got the ARPA money, then you got the budget, then you have a little bit of the surplus. You would have killed to have all this money when you were in the legislature, I'm sure, because weren't you always facing structural deficits? Uh, near the end of okay. my tenure, yeah. From uh, I was in from '98 to 2008, but uh, I like the 2.1 billion for roads, bridges, bike paths, and schools. That's great. That's a great thing. I suspect most of that tranche, to use your 
word. It's one uh, of my favorite words. Yeah, it's a, it's a great modern word for <laughs> lots of money. Um, so uh, that tranche um, is going to fund a lot of good projects. I think we've we're still long overdue for fixing a lot of the roads, bridges, and bike mm -hmm. paths, and schools that we have. So that's good. Um, the you know, but a lot of the other things. I mean, it's hard to say anything really bad or good yet because we haven't seen the details. But the general form that is taken, uh, especially when it gets through the General Assembly, is that we create these programs where the General Assembly and the governor get to hand out all the money to all the causes that they like. Affordable housing is one of them. Uh, the biggest problem with the affordable housing in this state is that taxes, property taxes and so forth are so high right. that it's almost impossible to build or rent housing that isn't going to be too expensive for people. That's where we should be looking, not giving out lots of money to special interests to make affordable housing more available. What struck me in the coverage that I read, Scott, was the governor went out of his way to make sure this, and it's what the speakers talked about, investment rather than spending. That these are not, once that federal money runs out, that we're not going to be on the hook. Now, he didn't address all of it, but I wonder as you look at this, it seems like a pretty moderate budget to me. Well, look, it's an election year budget by a guy who inherited the governorship, and now he's got to run for re-election. I mean, you look at it, it's like pot, ports, and prosperity. What do you argue with? <laughs> There's a big Christmas tree in there with a lot of ornaments. <laughs> for everybody, and he's not frosting anybody. He doesn't have to cut the budget. This is really the most flush economic times since actually Allman was governor and had uh, some surpluses, and Nick remembers that because he was in the legislature then. And one thing Allman did was he cut taxes. He cut the income tax by about 10% and also cut the car tax. But even now, McKee can continue the car tax phase-out, everything. Isn't There's it funny how there was no, no mention of that at all? It was just a given that was that was going to continue with a $600 million surplus, right? Well, it's one of the smartest moves, though. I have to tell you, as a former mayor of Providence, that car tax... Uh, yeah. Upset people more well, than that's any in other tax. It was like seventy-six per thousand. You well, were killing it wasn't them. fair. Listen, it wasn't uh, fair. The, that's the problem. It's, it's, it's not fair in two ways. One is they didn't like the valuation, which had nothing to do with Providence. It has to do with the state. They told me, hey, if we could sell my car for what it's valued, hey, I'd sell it. In give a it to you, right? Right. Um, they didn't like the the tax rate, even though there was an exemption. But I can tell you, the ta car tax is one that people across the state don't like. So that's a good thing. I think that Nick is right about uh, one thing, and that is the details are going to be important in how uh, these investments. Are made. Um, I think the affordable housing is very important. I like there's $50 million for down payment assistance to help people buy homes. Um, we saw today that the Realtors Association saying that there's only one month of supply when a healthy market has six months of supply in terms of uh, homes for sale. So I think that's important. Um, we need to invest more in education. Certainly the buildings, are, that's great that we're going to uh, help rebuild the buildings, but I'd like to see more support for teachers who have been uh, just exceptional um, during this uh, pandemic. And also have we have an opportunity to rethink education in our state um, to really um, look at Massachusetts and what it has done and do the things here to put us in a competitive uh, in a competitive spot, more competitive spot going into the future. And the last thing I'd say, if you're going to cut taxes, the one thing I would say is the sales tax, which is very regressive, um, and I think could have a real uh, helping <clears throat> impact on folks as well. Going so. back 30 years to debt, sure. though, right? It was going to come, it was a percent, it was going to come back down, right? Yeah. yeah. One of the things, though, I think we have to watch here, I hope the legislature has 
the guts to go in there and do some real oversight. Because when you pour this much money, when you spread this much money around, yeah. we all know that the temptation's gonna be there and uh, Nick's smiling, I can see. <laughs> Because you dump all this money in a little state and... You think those legislative grants are a problem? Hello. Well, these are jumbos. <laughs> yeah, I would... You want to make sure your tranche doesn't wind up in a trench, right? Tranche is well, code for jumbo as well. <laughs> we've seen it before. I do think that uh, with some strict oversight, the legislature could get themselves really hopefully in the business of watching how this money's spent. The good news is a lot of this is one-time spending. It doesn't look like McKee's really has any new, uh, you know, aggressive programs. He's not proposing free tuition at RIC and URI. There's other things that Governor Raimondo actually proposed, as you go call. And so I think in that respect, he's not presenting a bunch of new programs that have to be financed after the federal money goes away. You want the final word on this? Well, I just want to point out there was very little talk about tax uh, tax reductions. Uh, the only thing that I got out of it was that they were going to lower the minimum tax for corporations in Rhode Island by, by twenty-five dollars. Okay, right. and that doesn't—that just means that's the least we'll tax you. Well, you know, okay? you know, there's it's nothing a... about the ceiling. The ceiling remains way up. In <laughs> so the every year, even if we've had three hundred million dollars structural deficit, they go no broad-based tax right. increase, but they triple the price to go to Scarborough. So this year, I read it and they said, and the fees will remain the same. That's when you know you're in good budget time, right? Because <laughs> right. don't they always nickel and dime you on the, fee on the fees? Sure, sure. So of course, because they don't want to say that they raise taxes. Right. Taxes are like, for a government official nowadays, it's like verboten. Oh, you can't say you're raising taxes, so instead, We'll just hit you around the margins. All right, let's do this. Uh, I do want to talk a little national, but let's first, uh, let's go to um, outrages and or kudos. Mayor, what do you have? Um, well, I have a kudos and an outrage uh, related. Did and you that approve is, that with the producer, that you wanted to do both? That, that's right. Uh, um, it's the Arizona Democratic Party just recently uh, took uh, Senator Sinema to task because of the uh, her stance on the filibuster and voting rights. And I just wanted to contrast that. Actually, Scotty uh, yesterday tweeted about it. Uh, contrast that with what the Republican Arizona, uh, the Arizona Republican Party did, which was they took Republicans to task after they didn't support Donald Donald Trump and his efforts to essentially overturn the election. That's, I think, the difference between the National Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Wow. Nick, what do you have? For outrages of the week? Outrage or <clears throat> kudos. Do you the, have one? I, I have one uh, that has to do with the redistricting committee. Um, I saw uh, that some, uh, some kind of text or something from uh, Common Cause John Marion suggesting that um, that the General Assembly can never be subject to that. Well, that might be true unless they say that they are subject to the Open Meetings Act. And in that, that law that is governing their conduct up at the State House about how to redraw, it says explicitly that they are subject to the Open Meetings Act. So I hope the Attorney General looks into that. I think he will and uh, enforces the Open Meetings Act, I congratulate, kudos to the Republican Party for calling out that they haven't complied with the Open Meetings Act at all. Or if, if they did, it was a paucity <laughs> so the, of So the issue instances. is not that it's an incumbent protection plan, but their process was flawed. The process was flawed, but it's still, in all probability, to be fair, probably 
a pretty good incumbent protection plan, too. As, it, as redistricting <laughs> always is. Scotty, what do you have? Well, I'm off on a sourpuss, but today I'm going to do kudos. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Stop the press. Kudos. Stop. We'll stop everything. I really think that we owe a deep debt to the people in the hospitals, the doctors, the nurses, the housekeepers, the people who do the groceries, the folks, the janitors in these places, the people who are in nursing homes, on the front lines, the teachers. I do think that during this virus that we really have to honor what these folks have done mm. and stop yelling at them. You know, you go to a restaurant, don't fight with people. Everybody's got this fatigue. And if I had an outrage, it would simply be those folks who refuse to get vaccinated, who are clogging the hospitals and the ICUs and the emergency rooms and creating more problems for these people who really deserve our kudos and our deep, deep gratitude. Yeah, it's uh, the burnout. I can't imagine well doing that every single day. Okay, uh, this is the uh, this week marks. It's hard to believe the first year anniversary of uh, Joe Biden taking over as president. I think everybody would agree he needs a little bit of a reset. But what seems there seems to be a disconnect. Angel, let me begin with you. There seems to be a little bit of a disconnect. I think the economy seems to be doing well. Unemployment's low, but the inflation is just killing everybody. So what are your thoughts as we head into the second year of the Biden presidency? Well, I, I think that he needs to focus on the issues that impact everyone and that's the I think you hit it right the inflation is one that people feel it at the pump they see it at the grocery store they see it and anything that they try to buy and so that's something that people feel so that's yeah, great unemployment's down it's great that certain uh, uh, economic factors look good but inflation is something that touches you that's what you see that's what you feel uh, the other aspect is uh, COVID has been a, a big problem and rightly or wrongly uh, he's the president it's his responsibility now right and so I think people are tired I think Scott said it um, and he's getting a lot of the blame on that as well. Um, and like I said, rightly or wrongly, even though he's encouraged people to get vaccinated, he's rolled out the vaccine, he's doing as much um, as he can. But if he can get those two issues, uh, particularly the inflation and if COVID, uh, we finally make a turn on that, I think he'll be in better uh, position. Nick? I agree with Angel. The inflation issue is really uh, the biggest uh, Achilles heel for the president other than the public's justified suspicion that that he's not really a hundred percent um it's manifest again and again and again i think the two-hour news conference the other day uh I'm just not sure reinforced that was a good idea yeah but it just reinforced the notion he, he does not seem to be all there and i think people are very very deeply troubled in this country by the fact that they don't really know if they're president is capable of being president not because he has the wrong political views but because he doesn't have a sound state of mind that's a that? real problem what about that scotty i'm not so sure of that we had a president for four years who basically was a lunatic <laughs> who was <laughs> tweeting at 4 a.m and you look at the president i think his problem is that he thought that he could be legislator in chief and it's just not working and part of that is you know, the Senate, the Congress has changed so much since when he was there. And he, I think, should know better. He was there with Obama and saw the problems that they had. Trying, the Republican Party, unfortunately, until they get out from being a cult of Trump, you're not going to be able to deal with them on things like voting rights. You would think of Mitt Romney, who was a really decent governor of Massachusetts, a very bright guy, data-driven. You would think someone like him you could deal with, Susan Collins. But no, they all deal with McConnell, who the other day, you just 
need to look for the closest bucket when he said African-Americans are voting at the same percentage as Americans. You Hello. Get, you get the last 20 seconds. Well, um, <clears throat> the, um, I, I, I don't think that, uh, that the voting rights issue has as much uh, zip as the Democrat Party thinks it does. Um, I think people are pretty satisfied with the voting system that we have. It can always be made better, but I think you're overestimating the impact it's going to have, and it's probably not going to get through Congress, and I don't think it's going to be a big issue in the next election. Got to hold you there, gentlemen. Scott? Angel, good to see you. And Nick, thank you so much. Thank you. Folks, come back here next week. Uh, you never know what's going to happen. This was a packed week. We'll see what happens next week. We'll be here with a full analysis next week as a lively experiment continues. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi. I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.